Welcome to Lunch Money. We are your online and social media home for workouts, special situations, and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I am your, I'm the director and fund manager here at Hermes Capital, and uh, I am your Lunch Money host. So uh, a very special welcome to you. It's a big day for us today. It's episode 50. Can you believe it? 50. So we have missed a few. You know, we took a bit of a break over Christmas and a bit over Easter. But uh, we started when uh, when COVID started, and um, so we're we're uh, very grateful that uh, enough people have been interested to uh, to keep us going and to hit episode fifty. Now, I would like to say that the last couple of weeks we've had a couple of technical issues with audio and with uh, with sound. But I really want to encourage you to go back and have a listen. Have a listen. Go to the podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google, whatever it is you like, and have a listen to last week because um, the content on the property market, the commercial property market was really good. So uh, I wouldn't want you to miss out on that just because we had a, a few um, issues with the video. Uh, and likewise, I'd also encourage you to go back the week before when uh, when we spoke to um, to the guys about equipment uh, around the world, uh, around Australia. And I really would encourage you to uh, have a look at that as well. And uh, thank you very much to Deanne Tindall, who's, uh, who's congratulated us on 50 episodes. Thank you very much, Deanne. Very kind of you to, uh, to give us those four hand claps there. Um, now, I would encourage you to please uh, like, share, subscribe, hit the notification bell wherever you're watching us, whether it's on uh, YouTube or on Facebook uh, or, or if you're listening to us on our podcast, then uh, uh, share. Share it with uh, your other professionals. Um, I was looking at someone's uh, PD points the other day and they had, uh, they must have had about 47 episodes of Lunch Money uh, where they've been listening in and accumulating uh, PD points. So, um, you know, it's, it's not just the great content you're also uh, you're also uh, learning while you watch uh tony sykes thank you very much from uh, uh the our insurance brokers there uh gb insurance brokers thanks uh thanks very much tony for your congratulations um okay so what are we going to talk about today Th today we are going to have a look at uh the small business uh restructuring is it working uh the stats are really low at the moment and uh the you got to ask yourself is it working or maybe the environment's not right and I thought at the same time it'd be good to ask the question as to whether or not uh, is safe harbour working I mean small business uh, restructuring's only been going obviously since the beginning of the year but safe harbour has been going for a little bit uh, longer and just for those of us not not necessarily totally immersed in uh, in restructuring or insolvency the idea of uh, the government brought in these new small business restructuring regime at the beginning of the year on the basis that insolvency practitioners were going to be run off their feet and there was going to be a lot of small businesses that needed rescuing when JobKeeper came off but as you'll see shortly um, i'm not sure that those stats are all uh, are all coming in uh, as we had expected so I'm going to introduce our first guest, Kathy Sozu, but because I'm just basking in these, uh, these here, Paula Parthi, thank you very much, Paul, for, uh, for, your, uh, for your comments there as well. Uh, Paul, uh, at one stage, actually held the record for the most views of a guest when we investigated uh, Chapter 11. So uh, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, all right, I'm going to introduce our first guest, and our first guest is Kathy Sozu. Uh, and Kathy is a partner at McGrath-Nickel, and I will say, uh, you know, even after episode 50, I've got two brand new guests. Um, and Kathy is uh, part of McGrath Nickel in Sydney. Uh, Kathy, tell us what's been keeping you busy this week. Thanks, Nick. And hi, all. Thanks for having me. Um, look, we're, we're actually 
quite busy at McGraw-Nickel, um, which is interesting and probably flying uh, a little contra to the rest of our the restructuring industry. Um, but what's interesting is I would say 90% of the work that we're undertaking is not really in, an, in a level of distress because of COVID-related issues. So we're doing a bit in the property industry. We had a big appointment earlier in the year to um, Dildum, a big property developer with a significant development out in Western Sydney. There was yep. finished buildings, um, land banks and anywhere in between the two. And we've had a few more appointments uh, this week off the back of that from different lenders who are sort of, I think, managing their exposures to the group more broadly. Um, I've been busy on more of a distressed piece, but more advisory in terms of the, the confidential capital constrained entity stakeholders considering whether they should invest more or not and what the business case is. Again, completely unrelated to COVID and there are other pressures hitting that business. So I think we're keeping ourselves busy, but if I were to say it's it's in any way, shape or form, a, a little drip of the tsunami that's coming, not yet. I haven't seen it yet. Interesting. So you mentioned Dildam. Now, anyone who's from Sydney would be well familiar with Dildam. They advertise a lot on the radio. Uh, they're big apartment builders. Now, I would imagine that that would be quite a quite a complex structure. It's not just one single Dildam PDY Limited. They've probably got SPVs all over the place. That's right. I'm not directly. I've been appointed this week to a smaller exposure in related in relation to the Dildam Group, um, but the bigger one that came in earlier in the year, I'm not directly involved in. But it is large. It is complex, as you would expect of a large development group. Um, as I said, they've got a range of assets in different stages of completion, so it comes with sort of a different strategy for each asset as to what's the best way forward. And those that are partially complete what's the assessment and the feasibility do we build through or not so um, it is interesting and perhaps there's a COVID element around the commercial understanding of what that feasibility looks like in western sydney and, and apartment prices but right, it's nothing right, that's right. directly related to say well COVID's the reason this this went in yeah when we looked at uh, property last week uh, you know, we looked at, you know, Melbourne apartment prices, for example, are off 30 or 40%. I'm not sure how that reflects in Sydney. Now, the other thing that you mentioned, you said that you were talking about people investing more or sort of what go stop or uh, sort of decisions. Are they private equity firms or investors? What's what's the go there? Uh, shareholders. Um, no, not private equity. So nothing institutional, just shareholders in. Uh, it's a, this one's a bit sensitive, so hard to talk about, but really sure. just a capital constrained entity and it's a do we invest and go forward or do we cut our losses now, but there are some consequences to that. So, um, you know, it's just that element of the, I suppose, the distress side of what we do. If it's not the formal appointment piece where you can talk to receiverships and liquidations and VAs, there's that whole world in between where it's just putting that distressed lens on an investment decision. And does is there any safe harbour involved in that or no, no? No. So that's just like let's have it's just a cold hard look at the numbers and yeah. And how does everybody come off best uh, by you know charging at the enemy or just calling it a day basically? Yeah, this one particular is in a regulated industry, and so it's more right. meeting regulatory standards rather than pure solvency standards. So safe harbour right. hasn't come into play yet. It's more right. the regulator. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. So uh, bottom line, not necessarily seeing uh, much by way of uh, COVID uh, as such, no, but uh, but there's still yet. stuff bubbling along. All right. Yeah. Look, we're going to put you back in the waiting room, Kathy, and we'll just sure. introduce our next guest, who is Michael Sloan from Ashurst. G'day, Michael. How are you? I'm well, Nick, and you? Very good. You're looking fantastic there, which is great. We, we had a couple of cool starts. Very good. Very good. So uh, Michael is a partner at Ashurst in Melbourne. And um, tell me, what's been keeping you busy this week, Michael? A lot. Uh, yeah, it's pretty disturbing when you're on work calls at uh, 10 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday nights. Uh, like Kathy, it's not COVID-related. Uh, the new work that's come in has been agri and uh, regulatory in nature. Right. So, and they're, they're sort of legacy issues or are they international? I mean, if you're on the phone at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday, is that someone with a bit of a timing difference? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was a, a major international um, uh, financial services regulatory issue. Uh, the other one uh, was just a, um, you know, a, a trial running with just an enormous amount of work. Yeah. And speaking to, I mean, speaking to insolvency lawyers around town, yeah, I mean, I guess they they seem to be busy with legacy litigation as opposed to anything particularly new. Is that, yes. Is that, and, and why is that? Is that just because that's the normal course of business or is it just that people are, you know, uh, maybe insolvency people, for example, are just picking up files for want of activity and, and, and chasing down to see what they can get? I think it's just a lack of, um, you know, general activity. Uh, you know, well, everybody on the call knows, like, we've, um, you know, we've got historically low distress, we've got historically low interest rates, uh, we've, uh, you know, unemployment's low. Uh, this, the huge amount of stimulus uh, has worked to treat. And, you know, with the other uh, levers that the government, um, you know, pulled and pushed last year uh, uh, were almost in a boom rather than um, than the anticipated uh, tsunami that um, Kathy spoke of. Yeah, I guess it's interesting when you when you sort of read the papers, uh, you know, it's, it certainly doesn't seem to be any inflation, even though used car prices are going no. through the roof, property prices mm. are, are going are going through the roof and, uh, you know, furniture and clothing is coming off apparently, but there's you know, the people are more concerned about a deflationary event. Um, so I guess, you know, at, 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 a, at a firm such as yours, I mean, are you, you know, resourcing up or are you, you know, do you, are you anticipating an uptick in work or, or just see how it played, how it comes? I think played how, how it comes. Uh, you know, firms of our size, you know, like the, like the big four accounting firms, you know, there is that degree of flex um, uh, within the firm so that it's not the same as if, uh, you know, you're, you're in a smaller sort of standalone practice. So. All right. Well, look, we, let's, uh, let's bring uh, Kathy back. And let's uh, start off with uh, something that sort of triggered this discussion uh, for me was uh, I saw on LinkedIn that uh, McGrath Nickel 
uh, had put to, and Creditor Watch had put together a white paper called The Future of Insolvencies, Tsunami, Torrent or Trickle. Um, and I'll put a link to that, uh, to that white paper uh, in the notes uh, for this episode. Um, but tell me, uh, Cathy, I mean, what, what, what were the sort of the major takeouts from that paper? I think if we had to call it in one, it would probably be trickle. Um, right. You know, at the beginning of COVID, probably this time last year, actually, everyone was expecting the tsunami because we'd hit COVID. We didn't have any of the relief measures in place. It wasn't really clear what the government response was going to be. You had people concerned about their exposures. You had smaller retailers, for example, with landlords beating down their door and their customers' bases switched off. And we're thinking, well, how does that play out? Everything then stabilised with all the relief measures that were implemented. You had the safe harbour relief. You've got landlord relief. You've got an economic and political response that says, hold fire, we're doing okay. And that worked, rightly so. We had high, we actually had high consumer confidence and, and we did sort of successfully, I think, stop the flow that, we, that would have otherwise transpired. We then came into this year, you know, with the safe harbour relief, I think... Safe harbour can be valuable at the big end of town. And when I say the big end of town, it's when you have a board of directors in professional capacity, they're paid, they are, you know, there's, a, there's an understanding of their duties as a director, they're more cognizant, they're more willing to pay for appropriate advice to manage that exposure. At the small to mid end of town, I might be a cynic, but I think your exposure to an insolvent trading claims, you know, item 19 mm. on your concern list. You have got personal right. guarantees. Your yeah. house is aligned. You've got yeah. suppliers yeah. and employees beating down your door. No one's really thinking about, well, am I technically insolvent? And six months later, is a liquidator going to come and look at my insolvent trading exposure? So at I don't the know. SO, at the SME level. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know that yeah. safe harbour, I don't know that the end of safe harbour, that the relief, the temporary relief, I didn't think that was ever going to be a real trigger. I thought it was going to come with the end of JobKeeper because I think at the small to mid-end of town, it's really do you have the cash to make the payment you need to pay, make or not? And I think the delay that we're experiencing may actually be because some entities or businesses are probably more liquid now than they have ever been. They may have debts building up. They may not be the most financially secure. But if you think about from a lot of businesses, the two biggest cost-based items are your staff and your premises. And if you've not paid those for upwards of six months, whatever cash you've received from your customers, that's cash, like you're holding that. So I think there's a liquidity piece that needs to play out, which is maybe what's the delay we're seeing now between end of JobKeeper and when the pressure really hits. Um, yeah, uh, Jill Lawrence here. One of our regular viewers is making the coffee exactly, so, uh, uh, a comment I should say, I'm just, just drinking my coffee, exactly, Safe Harbour appears to work for directors that are not personally exposed, even so uh, it is, is it used that often. So um, I will put that question, thank you very much uh, for your question, Jill. Uh, I will put that question to you, Michael, just, just before I do. Uh, I mean, the idea of Safe Harbour, it was brought in around Malcolm Turnbull's time. It was all part it of a, a sort of a new innovation package. It I was. think yeah. the idea was that uh, 
you know, people uh, that knew what they were doing could get involved with, uh, you know, startups and innovative companies and not necessarily risk all their personal uh, fortune uh, just for wanting to put their shoulder to the wheel. And yes. that's why, as Cathy says, there's this big NED thing. Now, I think, did, Michael, were you saying to me the other day, I mean, you've you you, um, you were, you've been involved from Safe Harbour from a very early stage. I mean, you, you were working this early on? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think we might have done one of the very first um, ever Safe Harbour engagements. Uh, but look, I, I think um, what... Kathy has said is very insightful. Uh, I, I think the other thing which kind of cruels safe harbour, and I and, and I think it um, plays into the um, small business restructuring as well as uh, the requirement to have the employee entitlements up to date, because often it's not being able to pay those which actually triggers. Um, uh, you know, a default in SME land. Uh, so that that's why I, I think that Safe Harbour has a role to play at the larger end of town. I don't also, you know, picking up on that innovation agenda, you know, startups don't really face that same insolvent trading risk that more established companies do because they generally just, you know, like they run on cash and then if they run out of cash, well, then they stop, you know, so it's yeah. not like your typical um, build up and the liabilities. I think Safe Harbour has been good, but it's got, uh, you know, it's had a fairly narrow window of utility um, more aimed as has been said and commented um, at the larger end of town. But I guess one of the points of it, I mean, I was talking, I had coffee with you earlier this week, Michael, and yes. you, you were talking about a, a local business that uh, you'd given uh, just a little bit of sort of advice on the side to. Yep. I yep. mean, let's imagine, you know, they've said, you know, Michael, you've got lots of years' experience in these, you yep. know, in business generally, and you know lots of people. Would you please join our board? And, uh, you know, you, you, Safe Harbour would protect you. You know, on one hand, you, you've got good intentions, you want to help the business. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, you don't want to have to go home at night and explain to your loved ones why they've lost their house, <laughs> you know, just because you wanted to be a good bloke. Uh, so yeah. I basically got that right, don't I? Yeah, you, you, yeah. you've got that right. Um, yeah. Okay. My, my, Kathy knows my wife, Julie. She she often <laughs> says to me, why do you help out so many people? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. I'm a sucker. But um, but no, that that was, that, that um, you know, the, the gym that I go to is a really small business, but it used um, that time to restructure itself and it innovated and it, and to you know to use Kathy's word it pivoted it it, it, it moved and um, and managed itself through uh, so you know a, a lot of businesses like good businesses used COVID to restructure themselves yeah uh, yep. but I was speaking to um, you know the the head of a you know a, 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 the Glenferry Road um, shopping um, strip um, this morning, and she was saying in terms of those local retailers uh, that they're generally you know like the good are, have done really well and and have restructured, the bad are sitting there thinking, oh my God, job keepers come to an end and the landlord wants me to start paying rent 
Yeah, and I haven't changed, and and I, that's why I think that Kathy's um, uh, liquidity point uh, I I thought really um, resonated with me because it is those small businesses that will be um, facing an impact, but probably in a few months and. All right. Well, um, let's let's yeah. let's. I, let, I just want to get to a couple of stats, and then I'm going to come to I'm going to come uh, to you, Mark Robinson, and to you, Shabnam. Uh, we're, we're we're going to buy into your little discussion there very shortly. Uh, firstly, I would like to go to stats. So let's start with slide four, and let's see exactly how SBR is going. So I had a look at ASIC. These are stats compiled by myself. I'm not a statistician, uh, but I went to the ASIC website. And uh, there's been uh, 38 declarations for eligibility of temporary restructuring relief. Uh, there's been six uh, notice of appointment of restructuring practitioner for a company. And there's been three actual plans. So that's a total of 51. But given that some of these people uh, are doubling up, um, there's actually been 40 companies that have availed themselves of that. And if we can just go for the, for the history books, let's have a look at the podium on slide three. And uh, Adam Perona, I don't know Adam, he's in Sydney. Uh, Ross McDermott, I don't know either, he's out at Melbourne. So he did the second one of these plans. Now, I, know, I, don't, I do know Darren Vardy. Uh, he's come in third there with one on the 19th of April. And Darren, we're going to have to wait for you next time you have to lift your game, next time the legislation changes to, to bring something in. So, so let's, let's now, the, let, now the next slide I would like to go to is just very quickly is my diagram on slide five. And this is my little picture of what's going on. So we've got a small business. They've got to get through some criteria. They may or may not have to deal with their bank. They might have lawyers advising them. They've got their accountants. That's my uh, impression of a calculator there, in case you're wondering. <laughs> They've got suppliers and employees. Now, one of, now, now, one of the uh, big uh, issues, we'll just ditch that slide for now. One of the uh, big questions that I have, and, um, and let's just go, we'll go to Mark Robinson, uh, who's been a guest. He says, doesn't the SBR cap need to increase to at least 5 million to be workable? And before we come to that, we'll go to see what Shabnam had to say. Shabnam uh, Amabiage, he says, uh, isn't a debt level of 5 million better placed into a traditional voluntary administration? Whilst 1 million may be low, there would be too many complexities to warrant a small business restructuring and the lower fees at a debt level of 5 million. And then we've had someone else buy into this as well. Uh, Alice Rue, I don't know Alice. I don't know if any of you know Alice, but she yeah. says, uh, I tend to agree. I thought the 1 million in unsecured debt only about right in terms of where the SBR should be aimed at. So thank you very much to, uh, to Mark, Alice and Shabnam for, uh, for sharing your thoughts there. Now, another, another comment that I don't have is a comment that someone made uh, when we posted the promotion for this. And he said, oh, the fees are too expensive. Um, now, of course, the whole SBR thing is meant to reduce the fee. So let's, let's, let's start with, with you, Cathy. Where are you on the, on the limit? Should we lift the limit to, to $5 million? I'm, I'm probably with all three of the comments. Do I think it's effective at one mil? Probably not because I think it's, I think it's a good intention. Let me start at the beginning and say I think that there is, it is well intentioned to have a smaller process and a streamlined processes to help to help businesses of this size try and restructure themselves. So that's helpful because VA can be an expensive process. It, it can be complex. 
Um, and if you're a business with sort of sub a million debt, maybe it doesn't quite work for you. So I think there's valid intention. Do I think that the current process as drafted achieves that? Probably not, which is why I think we haven't seen big numbers. And I think it's a range of reasons. Is I think the limit's one part of it. But I also think the process doesn't quite hang in my head. It's it's. I mean, it's been referred to as a debtor in possession model in that the debtor yeah. stays in control of the business effectively. Yeah. So you're coming in as a small business restructuring practitioner. You don't really have access to challenge or interrogate. You, you know, they give you books and records, you look at them. Being asked to certify a plan, but you may not have the appropriate information or control to actually form a view on that. You're not really having to compare it to an alternative because there's no need to do a liquidation counterfactual. So I'm not quite sure what you're certifying other than mathematically it adds up and you're sending yeah. it out to creditors. As to Shabnam's point, as you get up, as you lift it to five mil, they become quite complex, even though the debt might be small. Often at the smaller end, the actual structures that are in place and the issues that come to play and related party involvement that's quite complex at that part at the smaller end of town. So, again, I don't know that this system works where you're being asked to come in and solve the problem and you've got some liability as a practitioner but you've got no control. And meanwhile, I'm still not sure how the business trades through when they're effectively flagging at the beginning of this process to all their creditors, sorry, we might be insolvent, so if you can yeah. just help us out here and take a haircut, oh, but can you keep trading with us? Because we'd really like to trade through this period. Because yeah. if I'm the creditor or supplier, even with the best intentions in the world, if I say, look, I might take a haircut on my debt, I want COD on anything between us whilst you affect this plan. So well, then, it squeezes yeah, you yeah. anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, what now, Michael, what, mm. what are your thoughts there? Firstly, uh, I understand that you may have been uh, somewhere hovering around at the conception of this yes. uh, model, um, yep. although it may may or may not have turned into Frankenstein's monster once it, once it got <laughs> into government hands. Um, and, and I know talking to you the other day, you thought that the cap was one issue, but employee entitlements as a qualifier is another. So, I mean, firstly, any reflections on, on Cathy's comments? And do you want to sort of talk to us about employee entitlements? Yeah. Uh, look, the, the $1 million cap is, I think, in, intended to um, be given some time to see how it works. And, and I think that time should play out. Uh, yes, um, and it was good to see Paula Parthy there as well. Um, Paul and I and um, Richard Fisher and others uh, were speaking to Treasury almost around about this time a year ago trying to triage and we we basically suggested that there should be uh, the, the reform should be aimed at the smaller end of town to enable debt restructuring effectively uh, what came out what we, what we put forward was relatively straightforward uh, what came out um, is quite complicated uh, but I, I think that it should be given a go uh, I think that there are issues, you know, it, the general populace doesn't really know about it. So, that, you know, a bit, there's a bit of education. Uh, the point about employee entitlements uh, is a much larger issue. But, and this is a personal view, I think that 
the the primacy given to entitlements potentially over jobs um, pervades not just this but voluntary administration as well and impacts on safe harbour but to get unfortunately any serious consideration of that is just not going to fly politically but from a law reform restructuring perspective looking internationally uh, I wonder whether um, enabling people to compromise entitlements to save jobs um, may um, assist in restructuring across the board but but that that's um that's a big topic and and it's it's uh, undoubtedly controversial but um, to, to go to the point, I think give it give it another few months before we look at the cap on the one million. And the theory behind it was about seventy eight percent of businesses that go into some form of insolvency process have debts of less than one million dollars. That was the reason why they chose that cap, but it should be reviewed in due course. Okay. Um... Now, and you, you were sort of, uh, when, when we were talking, we've, got, we've had some more great comments, so uh, thank you very much uh, also to, uh, to uh, Natasha, who has had great points, Cathy, um, so uh, thank, thank you very much uh, for those comments. Um, you, when, I, when I saw you the other day, Michael, yeah, you were kind of quite strong on, look, we've got to, we've got to give this thing some time. Um, mm. You know, we as we've been discussing, I mean, typically when it comes to small business or any kind of insolvency, there needs to be triggers. Uh, certainly the banks are sitting on their hands. The banks aren't pushing anybody. Um, we've had JobKeeper, as as, as we know. Uh, and look, uh, credit to JobKeeper. If we just have a look at slide number one, there was a great little article by Robert Godleibson in The Australian, and he gave a case study about how one business was, you know, would have would have gone to the wall. Thanks a lot for that. We'll, we'll take that slide down. Uh, one, when would have gone to the wall had it not been for um, uh, for JobKeeper, but that's come to an end. But the other thing is then there's the ATO. Now, uh, I, I've, I've heard, you know, rumour on the street that starting May, which means starting next week, that the ATO is going to start issuing 100 wind-up notices a week and then starting June wow. that's going to be 150 a week. Now, we won't know if that if that's just uh, scuttlebutt or true, I suppose. Come this week, this time next week, we'll be able to check the notices and we'll know. Um, but I guess, I mean, Cathy, do you think it's too soon to call it? I think it is, but I, but I do think the ATO has a major role to play in how, especially at this end of the market, the level of activity that we see. So to the extent that the ATO has been sort of falling into line, if I can use that terminology, with the rest of the economic and political interest around let's give everyone some time, and I think they've played their role in doing that. But at some point, we need to start reverting back to what is an economic market, an efficient market, sorry, that says, well, yeah. for those that aren't cutting it, they need to they need to fail or go through some level of process so the contagion doesn't start spreading. And... You know, we've heard about the zombie companies and the impact. I'm not being too sensationalist, but to the extent that businesses are continuing to incur debts where they may never be able to pay them, there is the risk of a contagion effect. And, you know, I think that's why it's now incumbent on entities in the current environment to look up and downstream. So whilst you may be okay, if you are reliant on a key supplier 
probably worth having a look about how they're going. Equally, if you're reliant on a key customer, it's worth looking at how they're doing because it might squeeze you from, from either side, even if you've managed your own affairs properly. Well, I'll just, I just quickly come to Paula Parthy. Thank you very much for your comment. Good points, Michael. Small business restructuring and law reform is hard. There are now a lot of good models overseas that we can learn from. And if you go back and uh, listen to the episode where we had, Paul, we talked about mm. some of those. I agree, though, that we should be giving the new regime more of a chance to see what does and doesn't work before we start tinkering. Well, I think that that's probably a very fair comment. Um, I, so just a couple of things that you you um, said, Cathy. I mean, firstly, yes, uh, companies fail. Uh, it is, you know, it, it is the, the law of the jungle. The, the resources get, uh, uh, you know, th those companies are holding up uh, employees, staff, talent and resources that, that, you know, by the law of the jungle should be reallocated uh, to places that can use those resources more efficiently. So there's that. And when we had Warren Hogan, uh, the, the economist from Judo Bank on uh, earlier this year, we talked about that. The other thing, of course, is I guess the... Um, the, the sort of moral hazard type issue where, you know, I, I can be, I'm running my business, I'm paying my tax, I'm paying everybody. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, the, my competitor next door isn't doing any of those things. Uh, and I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm losing sales, I'm losing, you know, I'm not able to hire more people. So there's all of that as, as well that, 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 that certainly comes into that. Um, so... Uh, Okay, now I'm just having a look here. Maybe some of the reasons why. So, one of the reasons that 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 maybe the SBR is not being taken up is it could be that we just haven't had the pressure yet. So, so there is that. Uh, but then we've also, and then we've got it could be the million dollar cap. Uh, it could be the employee entitlements. There is also uh, a lot of money. We keep saying this on this show. But there's a lot of money out there. So there's a lot of easy credit. Uh, house prices are up as well, as we know, around the country. So it's easy to borrow. So I, I just wonder, Jill Lawrence made another interesting little observation here. I need to put my glasses on to make sure that I pick the right one. Um, so she says, this sort of illustrates it, you know, do you consider there is a risk for small businesses now booming unexpectedly, say a local gym, I guess that's one example, to overcapitalize, perhaps not allowing for a return uh, to employees, etc. So so my question is, I'll, I'll start with you, Kathy, then I'll come to you, Michael. I mean, are you seeing easy credit and high asset prices as an impediment to restructuring? Uh, it's probably not an impediment to restructuring. I think it's helpful in inappropriate restructuring. And that's why I think there's actually now is a good time for businesses to take advantage of what is, I think, outstanding uh, circumstances to effectively restructure your business. You've had a level, you have stakeholders that are trying to work with you rather than against you. You have a market where there's a surplus of liquidity and people are trying to find a good place to put it. You do have availability of capital and low interest rates. And, um, you know, this is an outstanding time to restructure your business appropriately. I say appropriately because I think the point is go through a proper avenue and use the resources that are available. So you actually execute it in a way that is sustainable. My concern is to the point really that was just made is I don't think businesses are necessarily, I think there's a risk, maybe if I put it this way, businesses are bridging to something. I don't think they've articulated what it is they're bridging to. So there's cheap cap, there's, a, there's an issue in my business, I need money, look, I can redraw on my house or I can access money quite simply, I'm going to pull that in. That buys me time. 
but I don't think people are articulating what it is they're bridging to or understanding yeah. where they're going. And that's the risk. Whereas in a proper restructure, you're forced to think about whether it's a VA going through a docker, what's my end game? And it forces you to think that way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what 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 do you think, Michael? I mean, you know, a lot of capital, a lot of alternatives to restructuring. On the other hand, there does seem to be this fantastic window, as Kathy says. I think it's a great window for floating a business, selling a business. I mean, the, the, the window is open now for lots of stuff. What, what what do you think, Michael? I agree. Do you do a bit of M and A advisory in your practice as well? We do. Um, Paul and Kathy were involved in it. Um, you know, we we just finished advising toll on the deal with the Legro. So, no, look, I think, uh, you know, it's a very opportune time, as, and as Cathy said, 100%. Some of these, uh, some of these uh, front page uh, restructurings are certainly a great advertisement for the TMA. You've got uh, um, Adrian Loder, obviously, who's got a, a deep history with the TMA and, and yourselves as well. And then you look at the Virgin Matter, uh, there was oh, sort yeah, of T yeah. TMA fingerprints all over it. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the um, TMA is good, 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 good and bad um, fingerprints. Ah, look, <laughs> to be you know, no, no such thing as uh, as bad publicity, as they say. No, it's, it's, it has been uh, it has been outstanding uh, for the TMA. There's no doubt about it. Now, some of the other issues that I've just got noted down here. I mean, I've spoken to some practitioners who who just don't like SBR. They say, well, why would I do that? I should, you know, I'm better off just doing a voluntary administration. Um, so, what do you think about that, Michael? I mean, do you think the, the way the thing is, you know, as you said, it was con it was conceived in a, a simple design. It's become Frankenstein's monster. They're my words. I don't want to get you in trouble. But, um, you know, it, it, should you just opt for the voluntary administration and forget about it? Oh, no, I don't think so. I, think, I do think it's got, a, you know, it's got a valuable place. But like any type of reform and, and it was, look, I, I think when you looked at it, it did, did make sense to have something available that was not as bloated as VA. My, my, my view is, is that VA itself has become expensive and has gone beyond what was supposed to be quick and easy breathing space. But, you know, give, give, it, give, it, a, give it a while, give it a few months, give it a year and see what it's like. And then um, if it's not working, then change it. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think, Cathy? I mean, is it, uh, you know, are you sort of more inclined to say, look, why don't we just use the voluntary administration process? It's been tried and tested. Uh, two answers. As an insolvency practitioner, am I lining up to take on an appointment like this? Not just yet because the, the risk profile sits a little uneasy. Yeah. But do I think, to my mind, it's not so much a matter of time, but I think it's when the pressure hits. When we genuinely see the pressure starting to hit, is there enough of an uptake of this as a process to say, well, on balance, we think people are using it? And do we have enough evidence and examples to then identify how best to fix it? Because I think until we have some scale through the process, you know, I think, did you say there were three restructuring plans in place? We're yet to see if they actually make it through to a successful outcome or whether they've just yeah. been agreed on and yet haven't been executed. I think we need yeah. to see how we need to get the numbers up to then challenge and improve it as a process before I think we throw it away. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess, as you say, we, we, you know, it's way too soon to know whether or not it's been successful. But I do know that, again, some practitioners that I've spoken to, they, they've said that the, they, uh, with, 
because I'm not a practitioner myself, I, I don't see the information, but, you know, the practice notes or whatever it is you call them that come from the professional bodies mm. have not been clear perhaps or that they're, they're just not user-friendly? I, I think there's a lot of... Um, I think with any new legislation that's in, that's introduced in a very very tight time frame, you're always gonna, you're always going to have teething issues. So it's a bit unclear. There are some things that are open to interpretation. Maybe the drafting on a technical reading is open to one view, but in practice, it was meant to achieve another. Are you taking a strict liability view and trying to cover yourself, or are you being a bit more commercial? But you know, are you concerned that you don't want to be the test case that proves actually you interpreted it the wrong way and we actually meant this? So. I think there is some confusion on both sides around some of these principles. And that's why I think you need the test cases to flow through so that we can start to refine them and get clarity on, on the way it's supposed to go. I mean, my understanding of the process is you're not supposed to go anywhere near a courtroom. It's supposed yeah. to play out yeah. easily and quickly and be agreed amongst the parties. Whether that is actually achieved is yet to be seen. And I think we need to see whether these plans are executed on and actually get to the point where they're implemented and successfully see people come out the other end before we can call whether it's successful or not. Well, I was saying to you earlier that, that, that there was a comment put on LinkedIn uh, uh, saying that, that the process was too expensive, but I think the whole point of the SBR is that it's going to it's got to be cheaper. But I'm wondering, as a result, I mean, probably nobody really wants to talk about this, and me being just a poor dumb financier, uh, I'll uh, I, I might blurt it out. But isn't it um, isn't it if it is just if it is just so cheap, it's just not that attractive for practitioners to even want to do it? They're just not making there's, enough money out of it. There's two components. So there's the upfront fee. I think for for that initial process of where you're agreeing the plan. And that will just come out as a commercial, I think, you know, we'll see where the forces land. If someone thinks it's worth 10 but someone's willing to do it for five, then it's five, right? And you see yeah, how that yeah, plays yeah. out and you have to yeah. form a view about whether you want to expose yourself in that market. Yeah. But from my understanding, when you're implementing the plan, your remuneration's pegged to actually the payment of the dividend. And so yeah. if there's a plan that goes up, but you're there working with people over an extended period and that plan never gets through to fruition or for whatever reason fails, you're exposing yourself to no payment. So I, I think that's interesting. I, I don't know the answer to this question, but has there been any alternate regist liquidator registration appointments under the new... So part of the new law yeah, was there yeah, a second yeah. tier of registrant, and I'm not sure if anyone's been sought registration. Uh, do, you, do you mean the simplified liquidation? Um, well, you could... Uh, you could be a different type of practitioner. Oh, you could oh, be a sorry. registered liquidator. That's right. That's right. In the traditional sense, you could be registered to undertake this type of work. Yeah. Michael, yeah. do you I, know if anyone has registered? No, I don't know. Yeah, I, I did. Michael actually raised that with me on Tuesday and uh, in a perfect world, if I had, you know, if I was Channel 9 and just not some YouTube blogger, I would have got my teams of uh, researchers to check that one out. Uh, and Michael did flag that it would be a very interesting thing to know. But I don't know. Listen, I just want to acknowledge Richard Johnson's comment here. He agrees with everybody and uh, there is no real ability to test the roadworthiness of this. Uh, Richard's uh, coming to us from WA, so thank you very much, Richard, for your comment there. You're more or less reinforcing uh, the comments here that it's a bit chicken and the egg, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a matter of nobody wants to necessarily uh, 
to make a, a wrong step. Um, but yeah, I would have liked to have known. We, we people were concerned about who it was that was going to uh, to become these alternative uh, practitioners, whether or not they were going to be accountants um, or uh, you know or, 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 or who who they might be. Uh, Shabnam's raising again this issue here that it may well be that in some cases the you know the prepack, which I think that does does the small business restructuring actually facilitate a pre that the old prepack. I mean that's what it was meant to do in the UK. That's what the new legislation did. It allowed uh, practitioners to to uh, you know predetermine the result of insolvency. Uh, I mean it's something that goes on. Do you, do you think that that's one of the virtues of this, Michael? Uh, I, I know the reason for the um, inclusion, um, which is. Um, not that. It was because of the um, supposed tsunami. So there was a concern yeah. that there would just be so much work and so and few qualified people to do it. The other um, relates to uh, regional appointments. And right. if, you, if you're dealing with, you know, remote locations with um, small business, it, it's not always easy to find a qualified uh, practitioner, um, especially for a, a smaller matter. So the view was, um, you know, if you could qualify the local accountant who, who yeah. may very well be able to um, do that, then that was the intent. But the reform was, uh, you know, put in the furnace at the time that the consensus was there would be thousands yeah. of potential insolvencies yeah and now we've it, it's emerged in this most benign of worlds so that was the rationale behind it but um but the rationale hasn't played out in reality okay listen guys we're 46 minutes in so uh, I am going to ask you just very quickly for any final comments. My final comment is that um, it's, I think there is a window there and people should strongly think if, if restructuring if restructuring's on the table, really start thinking about it now because this, the, the environment I don't think is going to get any better for it. Well, what, about, what, what are your closing comments, Michael? And then I'll come to you, Cathy. You've got it spot on. I'll leave it there. Okay. Uh, and Cathy? I wholeheartedly agree. Everyone should go forth and come up with a restructuring plan. You've got plenty of people on the line that can help you execute. Listen, uh, Jill Lawrence has just put in a, a little sort of a, a snuck one under the door there. Uh, a little left field. Any view on the ripple through effect of green sill implosion? I'm not seeing it myself, Jill, for what it's worth, and we deal with a lot of contractors. Um, Michael? I've heard um, on the grapevine that it hasn't been as a significant job in Australia, at least, mm. as, as was um, expected. So I I don't think that there will be that effect from that. You know, like Wyala, um, it could be it could be catastrophic there if um, something to were to happen. Mm. You know, with with GFG, but. Greensill, not so much. Kathy? Kathy? Similar views. I think yeah. the ultimate third-party credit risk cutting through Greensill is probably okay. It's really whether there's broader implications off the back of GFG. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things that I, I certainly noticed was that uh, probably there would have been a lot more exposure a couple of years ago, but uh, through political pressure and what have you, the thing had sort of burned, wound back. I'm not an expert on that, but I'm going, I'm going to wrap it up. So thank you very much, uh, Michael Sloan from Ashurst and Cathy Sozu from McGrath Nickel. I really appreciate you making the time today. Thank you to all the people who've participated uh, with your online comments and questions, and uh, we'll do it all again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cheers. Thanks, so, thank you.